Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and this is The Atlantic Interview. Each week, I talk to someone I find compelling and, more to the point, who is willing to talk to me. Uh, and we sit around and we chat about the great issues of the day. Uh, and today, we're going to hear from the journalist Jake Tapper, uh, who is known primarily for his Twitter account, but also for his uh, near-constant appearances on CNN. Uh, his signature, as many of you know, is calling out hypocrisy in interviews with powerful people. There is something in me that gets really exercised when I think things aren't being aren't fair, and I can't psychologically explain it, um, except to say that it's just part of who I am. Jake and I spoke recently at CNN's bureau in Washington. Welcome to the Atlantic Interview. Our guest today is Jacob Tapper. <laughs> He's a big muckety muck at CNN, and the only reason I say that, Jake, is because I can never remember all of your titles. What are all your titles? Um, I am the anchor of The Lead with Jake Tapper, anchor of State of the Union. I watch your show, by the way. I watch all of your shows Thank when, you. I have, when I have time, um, which is not that often. That's kind of like a caveat. Yeah, like you almost just said, I watch your shows except most of the time when I, watch, I don't, when I I don't w- watch your I watch, shows. For the so. home listener, I want to just explain that um, Jake and I are actually friends. Yes, people in the dreaded MSM are friends with each other. Yes. Um, but I would say this to those of you who are listening and wondering if they should keep listening, um, that we fight a lot. So um, <laughs> in, in a recent GQ profile of you, you were described as a 48-year-old handsome Jewish man. But I would like to, to note that you're a 80-year-old, <laughs> w- once was the soul formerly yes. handsome, still Jewish man. <laughs> um, first, let's talk about you, because a lot of people don't know. You become very, very famous, I, I think. I don't know that that's true. I think you become very, very famous. You were in GQ magazine. Okay. You don't like much of your, you don't like your clips often. You I thought like that that was a very, it was a very nice story, and I thought she, she captured uh, something that I've been feeling a lot, which is I spent eight years being attacked by the Obama administration and uh, Obama fans, and now a lot of them are acting we, as if I'm like some other person. I'm so old that I remember a time when <laughs> liberals didn't like you. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was three years ago. Right. Or actually two, yeah. maybe a year and a half ago. I, I don't think you went into journalism to become famous. No. I know some people on TV who went into that because they liked being recognized and like getting good tables in restaurants or whatever the yeah. cliche is. Why did you become a journalist? Well, first of all, I should say, like, I was a high school journalist, and then I went off to college. Did you break and... any big stories in high school? <laughs> I asked that seriously. Uh, the Jews for Jesus were really big in the 80s. Right. And an alumnus named Billy Moggin started a thing called the Anti-Missionary Coalition. Right. He was protesting Jews for Jesus. And there was a whole dispute about how much Akiva should be associated with that. And I wrote a story about that. Right. Got some attention. I mean, for it was a school with 300 people. I mean, it's not. Three. I mean, it wasn't. Got attention. Like, <laughs> yes, it was. The, it, the, a lot of a lot of ninth graders read it. It was it was very exciting. Whatever. Whatever. You got your first taste. Then then move forward to Dartmouth. Um, so then I went to Dartmouth and then I wanted to be a cartoonist and then I wanted to go into film, not as an actor, but as a writer director. And then. Um, I found myself uh, during 
film school at USC, uh, University of uh, Southern California, listening to the Clarence Thomas hearings in class on my Walkman. And I realized LA was not really for me. But one time I was on a ski trip and there was a guy, a, a guy there who had just written a freelance article with his brother for the New Republic. I, re- I read the New Republic religiously during that time. And I was like, oh, well, like real people can you just can like write free. Yeah, you can write freelance stories. So this light bulb went off and you said, I and I said, that. oh, my God, I can, you can write freelance stories. And then I just started submitting any freelance story anywhere I could and building up just like clips. And then I was going to the plan was I was going to like take all these clips and submit them to the Washington Post style section, which at the time, again, in the 90s, the Washington Post style section was amazing. I wrote uh, a piece about a guy in his young 20, early 20s, living in his uh, grandmother's pool house, running a smut empire. He was making lots of money, living with these two strippers, and he was trying to get into porn. It was all taking place in College Park, Maryland. And I wrote this for um, the Washington Post style section, freelance, and they got back to me saying they couldn't print a word of it. Um, <laughs> so I went to City Paper with it. And that was my introduction to City Paper. And was that your introduction to David Carr? To David Carr, to Eric Wemple, to the whole to the whole team. Tell tell me a little bit about what David Carr did for you. Well, he made me a journalist, um, yeah. and and he convinced me to leave PR and come work for him. And you know, I can't picture you in PR. No, I was so awful at it. Were also. you the worst? It's the worst. And what what made you bad at it? Well, I'm not a particularly good liar, and. Um, you know, I would say humble that, brag, <laughs> kind of. And then I would also say that, like, did you ever have to try to sell something that you couldn't do? No, um, because I no. Like, but, coal, I mean, coal, I, no, no. Cigarettes. It was it was like I mean, I'll tell you the accounts that I remember working for were uh, Crane Paper Company. They were pushing, trying to push back against the dollar coin. There was mm-hmm. a big move for to do a dollar coin. We worked for Hooters. They were being threatened uh, by the EEOC. This is during the Clinton years for not hiring men as Hooters girls. It wasn't, it wasn't your dream though, growing up to defend Hooters. No, uh, good people. It was, it's important to actually understand how that part of this world in which we operate the works. The reason I'm so interested in this is I see so many of our friends at a certain age jump into public relations. I it's, mean, every week I run into somebody and they say, oh, I'm doing so-and-so for X company. And, and I, I want to check my own smugness yeah, because People make their decisions based on the things that they have to do. But to me, it sounds like a nightmare. Go back to David Carr for a minute. Tell, yeah. tell me two things that you learned from him, two general rules. I don't mean organization of stories. Every, mis- every mistake is important, and you should avoid them at all costs. Like, I remember the first time I made a mistake in print. I, messed, I was writing a piece about the Humane Society and some people who were foster cat people saying that the Humane Society was too eager to kill off cats and dogs. And I mixed up quotes of two women that had the same first name, I think. And um, he was not happy at all. He what did he be- say to you? I, I just was kind of glib about it, I think. Like, oh, you know, can't you just do it like, because of an editing error? And uh, <laughs> That's and, a bad, that was a bad move. Yeah, because it wasn't an editing error. It was a report. No, but I, 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 I knew David enough to know that. Yeah. No, don't, don't go there. I mean, I still hear it. And like every time... I make a mistake or somebody who works for me makes a mistake. I hear that voice. So that was one. And two, cliche. He was such a, he was, he hated cliches so much. Uh, And he really imparted that into me. Television journalism is built on certain cliches. Sure. I mean, there, there's a, there are patterns and there's a, I mean, I remember being a Washington Post reporter and standing outside uh, Lorton prison, 1980. 
87, 88, there's a riot and, and, and that TV reporter is standing in front and, and he says, uh, he says, the flames are out, but the questions remain. I mean, there was only problem was that the flames are still actually shooting up behind his head. But, but I, and I thought to myself, and I was a kid reporter and I, and I, and I was like, the, the flames are out, but the questions remain. Like, who comes up with these ridiculous formulations? Yeah. I'm not attacking TV journalism, except maybe a little bit, but it's like, it's one of the things that maybe separates you is that you can write. Well, I hope. I mean, I can, but, but I mean, I think that, I think there are a lot of good writers in TV. Um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, look, first of all, let me just also say 24 hours of live television is not easy. And people end up saying cliches because they've been talking for so long or so. I mean, I'm not going to say that like I avoid them. I'm sure I use them all the time. Um, you know, we have banned phrases on my show, popping the champagne, measuring the drapes. What are the other ones? Uh, Those are good. Uh, I don't know. I know them when I see them. But, but, uh, do you keep a list? Those are the only two on my list right now. That's a short list. But but now, what about the word eatery? (laughs) I like eatery. What's wrong with eatery? Eatery is one of the worst words. A local eatery? I don't think I've ever used it. One of the worst words ever. (laughs) But I'm not going to. There's another word for eatery. You know what it is? Restaurant. Restaurant. Yeah, but what if you have to say restaurant five times? Say restaurant five times then, really. Really. Seriously. Mm, that's easy for no. You wouldn't do, but you wouldn't put the word restaurant five you times in, in a par- in a write paragraph. Write harder. Write harder. Well, I hear you. Yeah. All right. You obviously get the bug. You're obviously talented. Question I always have for people who jump from writing to TV is why? 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 Because you, no matter how long a story is on television, you just can't tell as much of that story as you can in print. You have pictures, which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. But um, how did you get into TV? Like, what, what was the thing that moved you into TV? I started doing, like, little hits here and there on MSNBC and Fox Just talking head and hits. CNN. And then I liked it. And then there would be uh, times that I would write something. I would do, like, I would fill in on a show. And I would, you know, I'd be, like, a substitute anchor for uh, here at CNN. And I would write something. And um, it was fun to, 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 to say your own writing on TV. Um, so that was fun. Um, and I don't know, it just, you just, I mean, print and, and television journalism are very different. It's not like one is better than the other. I mean, look, I interviewed Tillerson the other day and I think that as a live television, live television journalism was effective for what it was. And how does it compare to a print interview with Tillerson? Um, well, a print interview with Tillerson, you would do differently. It wouldn't just be a transcript. You would weave in context and analysis and, you know, it just, one of the reasons a lot of these guys don't like doing that because, uh, this is something that you've, you've solved for by being relentless. But if you're being interviewed, well, you know, this, you've been the subject of magazine profiles now, um, the interstitial stuff can be very dangerous for the subject. Um, Sure. Tillerson with you is looking right at the audience and everything is apparent. One of the things that I decided to do in that interview was um, when it came to, I mean, we did a lot of substance. We talked about Russia and we talked about North Korea and we talked about the Iran deal. But obviously, I was going to also ask about the moron thing. And and I knew he was going to not answer the question. Bob and Weave. This is literally one of the most important relationships in the world, the one between you and President Trump. Is it true? Did you call him a moron? Jake, as I indicated earlier, when I was asked about that, I'm not going to deal with that kind of petty stuff. I mean, this is a town that seems to relish uh, gossip, rumor, innuendo. So one of the things I did was explain why I was asking. Ever since you called it petty, I've been thinking a lot about it. Because 
I, I'm a reflective guy and I understand the media makes mistakes and the media always could improve. But here's the thing. Either you didn't say it, in which case there are a whole bunch of administration officials telling the press and telling the president that you did, and that's a serious problem. Or you did say it, and look, you're a serious guy. For you to say something like that suggests a real frustration with the commander-in-chief. So when you don't answer the question, it makes people think that you probably did say it. But either way, whatever happened, it is serious. So can you please clear it up? As I said, Jake, I'm not playing. These are the games of Washington. Maybe that's kind of like using some of my print background in this. Right. Right, right, right. Even Talk- though it, it, it means also I take up a lot of time talking. Um, which but is that's not, okay. Which is, well, it depends. Well, I mean, there is this, um, you, you know, the, everybody has their own style. You probably talk more than the average, but there are, there are certainly outliers in that. But I don't think people are bugged by that because maybe you're doing, maybe you're bringing that print sensibility to it. It's interesting. I haven't thought about that, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Talk about something else related to your interview style because I'm always fascinated by this. Um, the, the, I don't mean this literally, but you don't blink, which is, which is very interesting. I, I'm thinking about, uh, the, I guess it's your most famous Kellyanne encounter, yeah. which ran for four and a half days on television. Was that four <laughs> I mean, and a half days without 20, commercial? Break? 27 minutes. Probably didn't have a lot of commercials to run <laughs> 20, anyway. Right? 27 minutes. 27 without minutes. commercials. And, um, I mean, it's the combination of being able to sit still and, and bear down on it. And also, there, there is this thing, and I'm, I'm admitting something about myself that I don't like, which is, um, I, when somebody is squirming, sometimes I, I turn away from it, even yeah. though my job is to get them to squirm because they're, they're lying to me and I want, I and want the natural some human impulse is to avoid conflict. We're going to pause here to thank our sponsor, uh, and we'll be back in a minute with more Jake Tapper. Stay with us. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Like t- today was such a weird morning, okay? I wake up, I'm already kind of upset because President Trump um, tweeted, or President Trump said that other presidents, including President Obama, didn't call the families of KIA. I was going to get there because that must piss you off. That bothers me a lot because I cover the vet- veterans so often. Yeah. And I know, I know veterans that Pre- President Bush spoke to, visited, hugged, um, same with President Obama. Yeah. Um, and look, these are flawed men and they make mistakes. And did they call every soldier? Well, they can't call every soldier. No, no. But like, yeah. And so it was very upset. So you woke up, you woke I woke up, up upset because I, I cover veterans a lot. I talk Wait, to them a by lot. By the way, open parenthetical. How soon after you actually wake up do you look at your Twitter feed? Um, it's on the way to the bathroom. So yeah. a good 15, 20 seconds. Yeah. I mean, at your age. I've, I've made an improvement in that I now at least look at my email first. But... So that bothered me, and and be just because it's not true, and it, now you're and you're playing with 
the feelings and experiences of of gold star families right and i mean I, like honestly him besmirching president obama or president bush that doesn't bother they're me. All what, whatever, whatever yeah i mean they're they're presidents and they did the same to other people who cares right i don't i'm not worried about president obama or president bush's feelings but I know these Gold Star families, and I know that, that they remain, a lot of them, incredibly vulnerable, incredibly upset, and understandably so. Yeah. Um, so that just really bothered me. And then within the course of an hour, uh, the Scaramucci Post, which is the, whatever the heck it is, website, right. Twitter feed of the former White House communications director, is engaging in <laughs> Holocaust Post denial. Is a thing. Is engaged- they were engaging. They were just Holocaust curious. Doing a poll, how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust? Maybe it was just one million, two million, three million, more than five million. Like this isn't a poll topic, anyway. And then some nitwit on Twitter was comparing John McCain and Bo Bergdahl, who yeah. just pleaded guilty to desertion. Compared the two, you know, President Obama loved John McCain and Bo Bergdahl. This is why I love Donald Trump. Something like that. And Donald Trump Jr. liked it. And I'm just like, this is. I don't want any of this to be happening. That's my feeling about this. I would rather have woken up and none of that happened. It bothers me. It's indecent. Um, so I would prefer uh, to not be so agitated. I would prefer this stuff to not be going on. But, you on. know, there, here's an interesting thing. A lot of people in our business believe that Twitter is a is a pretty comprehensive negative. But something I'm hearing that's interesting from you is that is that... Twitter might be making you a better journalist. You're maybe at your best when you're a little bit peeved. Maybe it's keeping you on your toes. I mean, I understand as a citizen, as a human, you're like, why do people have to be this way? Yeah. Um, but but what I was about to ask you is, would you be better off if you just didn't pay attention to this the passing noise of Twitter and all the rest? I try not to pay attention to the stuff that's like against me. But... The three things I just told you about have nothing to do with me. They're just, they're just. One of them is so small. Some of some yuts on Twitter is comparing John McCain to Bill Burgos. Donald Trump Jr. liked it. Okay, but that's that's almost a reflex. But he knows better. And he's not the president. No, but he's the president's son, and I know him a little bit, and he knows better. And it's like, it bothers me to see, and it bothered me when Democrats did this in 08, but it bothers me to see people denigrating John McCain's military service. It bothers me. And when McCain uh, was attacked by Trump, uh, in uh, 15, 2015, said he wasn't a hero because he got captured. I prefer people who weren't captured. Yeah. I, I found that horrendously offensive. Was that the moment, by the way? Was that a pivot moment for you when you realized, wait, something had something has gone awry in our society? That that sort of thing should have killed the candidacy. He actually became more popular with his base. It's so hard out to, of that. It's so hard in retrospect to figure out which one was worse than the other. I mean, I like the racism and misogyny and all the rest. I, you know, no, 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 no. I, those are, um, those are things that I understand could appeal. Let me say this as carefully as possible. Could appeal, could appeal to certain parts of his voting public. Some people who, some people are racist voted for Donald Trump. I, I, I'm happy stating that. You don't have to state it. Not everybody who voted for Donald Trump is racist. But plenty of racists voted for Donald Trump. Right. And plenty of people had to overlook racism in order to vote for Donald Trump. But park that aside. My my point is, is that veneration of veterans, specifically POWs, is known as a trope of kind of patriotic conservative 
political behavior. Or, and then and then Donald Trump flipped the whole thing on his on its head right. by attacking a POW for getting captured, which of course, when you think about it, is insane. It's crazy. That I don't know. I can't look back and say that was the moment because the truth is I probably I don't know. I'd have to go back and read all my interviews, but I know I I did a lot with him in interviews on the Muslim ban. And I did a lot on, obviously, his refusal to condemn the KKK. And I did a lot on Judge Curiel. And I did a lot on his mocking the disabled reporter. And I did a lot. I mean, I don't know that I made made a bigger deal out of that than I did of other things that one would think. I'm just talking analytically, journalistically. Like, this is the, this is, this is the moment when the world went upside down. There, there is in the United States a historical context of xenophobia and racism that yeah, I'm not has, just saying it's Republicans, been, by the way. No, no, but, no, of course not. Yeah. Uh, that has been proven to have been effective. No, we're in, a, in an office full of... I mean, I'm staring at George Wallace in yeah. your office, yeah. by the way. Oh. A wide array of political posters, including one of George Wallace. I, we should point out that before people think I have a, an office dedicated to a horrible segregationist, that my office is full of posters of people who ran for president and lost. Right. And... I have a whole bunch of heinous George people. Wallace is next to Howard Dean, which would probably not please Well, look, Howard I have Dean. a Strom Thurmond in the corner over there, too. Like, I mean, these are not uh, over... And a Hillary. I remember, I remember that. I have two Hillarys yeah. because she lost twice. Um, real, but the point in even invoking them is there are a lot of people in this room, Democrats and Republicans, their pictures on the wall, who stood for some pretty heinous xenophobic right. things. right. My point is that is that it's traditionally been thought of as a losing proposition for a presidential candidate yeah. to attack a war hero. Yeah, that's that's the and that's and that gets me to sort of uh, the question about this moment in in our history. In a way, your personality was made for this moment because you have you do have an intolerance for nonsense and hypocrisy. Sometimes that intolerance for nonsense and hypocrisy makes you difficult to live with. Um, but you've been talking to my wife. Uh, no, I mean I don't even live with you, and I find it, you know, sometimes a, a strain. You can feel it a few blocks no, away. I, well, yeah, yes, yes. It's through it. It percolates through our neighborhood. It's, yes, I'm sorry. It's like a car alarm. We we live in the same neighborhood. I know it's like every MSM. You wake up at three in the morning. Is what is that? Oh, it's just Jake. It's, Jake is angry. Tapper's going to the bathroom and checking his Twitter again. You don't wake up in the middle of the night and check your Twitter. I'm not that old. Okay. But 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 maybe you're you're the guy for the moment in that the the hypocrisy level and the to put it bluntly the the level of unreconstructed and unapologetic lying and the, indecency lying and, I don't know that I'm a guy for the, I'm not agreeing with you with your proposition but the decency thing makes I, you I, I yeah I don't know that I'm any guy for any moment but I will just say this but there's something crazy about it, this moment this and, mo- there is there are so many lies and so much indecency and I'm not only talking about president trump there is just a world of it exploding and and we are i fear as a nation becoming conditioned and accepting of it and it's horrific it just feels like we're meaner to each other and and i mean every now and then i'll see a glimmer of light like um i thought you know the the uncovering of harvey weinstein yeah uh, and that story was amazing um and then just the outpouring of i mean he, the he, dam that's Burst open. It feels like it, although it's incredibly horrible to, I don't know what your Facebook and Twitter feeds are like, but all the women hashtag me too. It's pretty astounding that almost every right. woman but I this know. Is the, this is the disinfecting uh, aspect of sunlight. Yeah. Well, uh, I didn't know that every, like every single woman I knew had been assaulted or, or harassed right, at, right, at some point, if right. not worse. I mean, I didn't know that. Can I ask you just to open parenthetical again? Um, because you are, I wasn't going to bring this up because it's like ancient history, but you dated for like 10 minutes Monica Lewinsky. I went out with her once, yeah. Yeah, and, but but it's it's what's interesting to me about that is not the fact the, the, that you 
went out on a date with Monica Lewinsky. Before the scandal, we should point out. Yes, you did not date Monica Lewinsky after the... Not that there's anything wrong with it. Not that there's anything wrong with it. No, no, but I actually think think that Monica Lewinsky, this is my personal view, and I, I think I might share this with you, is that... She was wronged by society and wronged by the meanness of our society Honorable. in a way that's and, and I'm wondering if that if that personal experience of knowing her just slightly shaped shaped any of your thoughts on, totally. on the subject. Totally. Go into that. Um well it was my first uh, it was my first cover story for City Paper. Um I'd already been talking to them about um coming on board. Uh but um I'd gone out with Monica. It was a very G rated date in December nineteen ninety eight. I guess pretty and smart person actually, right? She was she was lovely, um, sweet, nice, funny, charming, bright. You know, she was about to move up to New York, and we went out, and that was the end of that. Um, but uh, then I went on vacation with my dad. When I came back, uh, the story broke, and I was just like, "Oh my god, I know this woman, girl." Really, she seemed like a girl. She was must have been like twenty two, right? Yeah, it was astounding because first of all, everybody was so giggly. The whole town was like prurient and mean. Everybody and was excited. A, a big sca- sex scandal. Isn't this funny? And I'm like, I know this girl and I know this young woman and she is being, her life is being destroyed by everyone. Everyone was destroying her. And I'm at the party that Saturday night and I, there was like a White House guy there. And I said hi to him and she said, he said, um, he insulted her and said she, mm-hmm. you know, she's crazy and said something else mean. Right. I put this all in the Washington City Paper right. story. But I don't know. Yes, it was rather um, right. gross. But it also fed into a general uh, posture that you have in life of, of intolerance, to, uh, intolerance for a, a level of hypocrisy. or um, and, and, and meanness, I, I hope. Yeah, yeah, no, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I, let's, let's, let's end up on that because I'm trying to understand the root of it because I do think that you have, um, risen high in a moment of great hypocrisy, of generalized indecency. This is me speaking, not, not you, but uh, I don't remember anything like this. I don't, no. I don't know. I mean, I think it's technology has en- enabled it, but let's put that. Well, can I, then, you, can I tell you one thing? So I'm running, you know, you know this. Um, so I'm writing a novel, and it takes. Oh, place. sure. Here comes the plug. Here, oh, right. It, it, I knew it. It, it I knew doesn't it. come out until May. Product so. placement. But here's the thing: it takes place in 1954. So I've been spending a lot of time in the last year reading about 1954, and I don't know who said it, but it is a brilliant saying, which is history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And there was this before. It was McCarthyism. It was incredibly indecent. It was full of lies. And a lot of people should have known better and did not stand against it. Right. There was a very powerful person, right. and everybody was worried about alienating his supporters. And when caught out on lies, double down on double the down lies, on without, lies without embarrassment. And there were people that knew better, like Senator Taft of Ohio, who was very highly regarded, a very strong conservative. Who didn't he, call it and out. And he thought he could straddle it, and he could, thought he could straddle the worlds, and he would say to people, to, he would say to reporters, well, why do you cover them? Why do you cover him? Why are you giving him the attention he needs? And you think you can straddle this stuff, and ultimately you can't. You have to be Margaret right. Chase Smith in 1950, calling it out four years ahead of anybody else. You have to do it because history has its eyes on you, to quote Lin-Manuel Miranda. Perillo. You think Obama got a free ride from often, much of the press? Often, I did. And we, you and I would talk about that all the time. From right. 2009 to 2017, we talked about that. Yeah, I, th- I think he got, I think people... 
were, were soft on him for a lot of reasons, many, many reasons, complicated reasons in some cases and, other, and in other cases. You think there's a possibility that Trump is getting too hard a ride? Sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Give me an example. I think there is an inclination of some people to interpret every single thing he says and does in a horrific way. And as if he is without charm and everything. I mean, look, uh, and I've said this before, but like, he's not wrong about everything he says. I mean, Washington is a swamp and there are a tremendous amount of conflicts of interest that we're not outraged enough about. Now, is he doing anything about it? Not really that I can tell. Um, Have trade deals been negotiated uh, with Wall Street and corporate America more in mind than middle-class workers and the working class? Yeah, of course. 100% they have. Is it insane to think that we should have a secure border? I don't think so. I mean, I don't know if a wall is the right way to do it or not, but like that's not necessarily wrong. So I I think like policy-wise, I think a lot of people in the press just like act as though everything he wants to do is just based on a falsehood. The premise is wrong. And I don't think that's true at all. Right. Where do you think this general posture of yours comes from? Um, you call it what you want, righteous indignation that fuels your journalism, obstreperousness, oppositional behavior. Uh, where, where does it come from? The, 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 I'm using this word advisedly, the moralizing part of your personality. I don't know. I, part of it probably is being raised by a doctor and a nurse who lived in a section of Philadelphia where there were a lot of working class people and um, thinking that seeing the world through their eyes and they were part of that generation thinking like the world needs to be better. It needs to mm-hmm. be better. Uh, we're not doing enough for poor people. We're not doing enough for for black people. We're not doing enough. You know, we're fighting a war that, that we shouldn't be fighting and our kids are dying for no reason. There is something in me that gets really exercised when I think things aren't being aren't fair. And I can't psychologically explain it, um, except to say that it's just part of who I am. And sometimes it ends up like being something that I can use to try to benefit the public's knowledge or understanding of an issue by saying, you're not being fair to these people. You're not being fair to this issue. You're not being, you know, our coverage isn't being fair. We need to cover Puerto Rico more. We need to make, these are 3.4 million Americans. We need to stay on top of that story. And even if viewers aren't watching it. We need to stay on top of it because we need to be fair to them. So it's just something in me. I don't know what it is. And I recognize that it's probably a pain in the ass for a lot of people who know me. But it is just who I am. It's, it's made your shows important right now. Oh, um, I hope so. And I think people in journalism might be catching up to where you are. I don't have any illusions that any of this is going to stand the test of time. I'm just, when... Jack and Alice, my kids, who you know well, who your kids babysit for my kids. Uh, when Jack and Alice read about this uh, period in, in history, uh, I want to be able to say, when they say, well, what did, what did you do about this? I want to be able to Google it and say, that's what daddy did that day. That's the story. I want them to feel good. You stood up for that that day. Daddy. You know, when all of, our, all of our kids can get together as adults and listen to this podcast. <laughs> the chances of that, extremely slim. <laughs> the chances of them making it through the first 30 seconds yeah, are nil. Extremely slim. They're not that interested in us. No. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that you and I are the two least popular members of, of the families. That, I, I would, that's what we'll have a agreement. And I'm including at. the dogs. <laughs> and, we'll, we'll, and we'll end it there. This is Jake Tapper talking to The Atlantic Interview. Thank you, Thanks, Jake, Jeff. for being on the show. It was an honor. Thanks. Nice.
That's it for the Atlantic interview this week. Thanks again to Jake Tapper for being on the show. This show is produced by Kevin Townsend and Diana Douglas with production help from Kim Lau. If you like what you're hearing, please review us in Apple Podcasts. If you don't like what you're hearing, please ignore that message. You can also subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, and I'll see you next week. We'll be right back.